Hey, Chris, Adam, Rachel, how are you guys? It's been so long. Hey, man. We just wanted to, uh, you know, check on you. Yeah, ever since we finished Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute, you've kind of gone MIA. Yeah, what have you uh, been up to? Oh, man, I've been so busy. I, I started rereading the Turtle comics, and, and I got the TMNT 90 movie score on vinyl, and I've been listening to that, like, nonstop. I watched 190 episodes of the 80s cartoon, the entire Nick series, beat the arcade game, beat the NES game, and Turtles in Time, like, three times each, watched the 2007 CGI movie, and watched Turtles 90 again, like, four more times. Oh, God. Dude, y you need to take a break. I, I even watched both Michael Bay movies. Again. Oh, oh no. God. Ugh. God, guys, he's gone off the rails. I mean, truth be told, I've kind of felt a little directionless since the whole minute a day thing ended. Guys, guys, we need to help him. He's falling apart. He needs structure, and I think there's only one way to do it. Oh, please don't say it. We, we have, have to, to do, do Turtles, too. A minute at a time. I love this plan. I'm glad to be a part of it. Hey, hey, what are you guys whispering about? It's okay, Scott. We're here to help you. We're going to do The Secret of the Ooze a minute at a time. Think of it as like your daily dose of turtle therapy. It's like a sequel about the sequel. You might even say it'd be our... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Second time around. I love you guys. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute Season 2, a podcast discussing the secret of the ooze, one minute at a time. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Kawa Sequelbunga! Dueling Genre Everyone, and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing death and mao Zhaolin from the comic book series east of west and note this is not the character death from death the high cost of living that we talked about in episode number 253 this is a different comic book character named death and joining the discussion is returning guest norman mitchell welcome norman hello it's good to be back so glad to have you. It has been far too long since we had you on. Uh, how is your podcast going these days? Uh, good. We are uh, past the 100 minute mark in Return of the King. So that's a good feeling. We've only got uh, another 140 minutes or so to go. Maybe so a little more. Everyone. Every once in a while, I look at the episode count that the protagonist podcast is reaching. I'm like, oh, we're established. We've been doing it. And then I think about the Movies by Minute podcast, and particularly uh, you and Cassandra doing the Lord of the Rings extended edition Movies by Minute podcast. You guys are putting out episodes at a pace I cannot fathom. Yeah, uh, the Monday through Friday grind is uh, is tough at times. That's for sure. Well, I respect you for undertaking that. And for any listeners here, I very much recommend Lord of the Rings Minute, where you guys are dissecting the Lord of the Rings movies one minute at a time. So each episode covers one minute of an extended edition's films. But you are into the, the final, uh, you're into the Return of the King. So yeah. The, uh, you know, we're we're there, creeping up on the halfway point. Sight. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is still leaves more remaining than some other movie by minute podcasts that have in their entirety, right? Yep, it a hundred percent in the in the time that we did just the first movie, 
there were more than a couple that started and ended uh, between our first and last episodes. <laughs> right. But uh, today, though, we're having you on to talk about East of West, which is a genre blend comic book from writer Jonathan Hickman and artist Nick Dragata. It blends Western, dystopia, steampunk, sci-fi, fantasy, a little bit of everything. I could probably throw in a few more and feel very safe uh, with that. Uh, it tells the story of death feuding with the other three horsemen of the apocalypse as the end of the world draws nigh. I've only read the first five issues, which is, you know, a, only a, a chunk of this series. But as an overarching idea, is that kind of cap capture what the series is about, Norman? Yeah, that pulls that's the that's the plot of the first trade for sure, kind of pushes us off in the direction we're going and is in broad strokes kind of the plot going forward. Yeah, I I imagine there's going to be a lot that happens because there's so many ideas that are just being uh, thrown together in uh, this first trade, um, which, again, it just encapsulates the first five issues that I can only imagine that it, it like unfurls into unexpected directions as the story rolls out. Oh, yeah, definitely. The I haven't I'm not uh, totally current on it. I haven't finished it. I've only actually read the first uh, five trades and it just kind of balloons out after the second one. Okay. Um, well, we'll get into it a little more after we do the summary. Some of my feelings about like, I felt more like I was being introduced to a world than introduced to a story, I think in the, in the first one. Mm. So with the subsequent issues where the story probably takes more precedence, you know, as you've gotten to more familiar with the series or, or with, with the world that's being built, I, I could see it heading in different directions very easily. So mm. a little bit of trivia. East of West is a monthly comic that ran from 2013 to 2019, and it had 45 total issues. Um, and the series has been collected into 10 trade paperback collections. And we're just covering that first trade paperback for this discussion. East of West was optioned for development at Amazon, but the option has lapsed. And I think I know why. <laughs> I think this would be so expensive to make that they're hesitant to pull the trigger on actually getting everything in place to make it happen. Like they love the idea of it, but then, you know, yeah. some of the numbers come in and it becomes intimidating very quickly. I could see Netflix spending the money to do it sometime down the line. Right. Uh, maybe it's because I really like Nick Dragata's art, but in some ways I, I thought this might work better as like uh, an adult oriented animation, you know, where they, they, Oh they, yeah. There, there's a lot of violence in this. So there's a lot of blood. So this would not be a kid animation at all. <laughs> But yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I can see this being translated violence. that way. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a few characters who are fond of beheadings. Yeah. They they share that in common. <laughs> yes. Um, now, this is a series that I had not read. I had heard mentioned on some comic book podcasts that I listened to. So I was aware that it was out there. And Hickman is a writer that always has, you know, a fair amount of buzz around him. But Norman, do you remember how you first came to East of West? I do. Uh, this is, it was purely by coincidence. I had no idea what it was. I was working over the summer in the, the coffee shop at the university where I worked for the food service program. And it was really slow because pretty much the only people on campus in the summertime are professors and kids taking summer classes. So I didn't have much to do in my day. And the coffee shop was in a library. So I would, on my lunch break, go peruse the stacks, find something to read. But uh, one day, the first trade of this wound up on the new arrival shelf at the front of the library next to the cafe. 
And I picked it up and I was like, oh, a Western comic. Interesting. And the thing that got me to actually read it is I turned it over and read the thing on read the stuff on the back cover, which is just two sentences. It's like we would tell you to pray, but it wouldn't do any good. You have earned what is coming to you. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. What kind of story is this? And then I read the first trade and was like, I have to find more of this. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is a, like a wedding the appetite trade. Not uh, that was a complete story arc <laughs> trade, I think. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's just getting started. And yeah. it only gets but, crazier. Um, 45 issues. It, that's a good, solid run. Like most comic books come out. Well, traditionally, they would come out monthly, you know, so you're getting several years worth of story. But it also isn't the never ending continuing story of like superhero comics where it's like, OK, well, let's right. We're now just dovetailing into the next chapter. Um, so I'm very intrigued to try and uh, get my hands on the other trades. And, and y- you know, you could you can do a 45 issue series with a few evenings of reading um, for comic books. Oh, definitely. Whereas, like, yeah, there are it- so- some series that are out there is like, well, I, I'd love to get to that, but I never will because because it never ends. So yeah. I, I can't tackle that one. One piece. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but East of West, like a 45 issues that feels like a a good, strong total number of comics to be to be working with. Right. Yeah, like it, it feels good. Uh, it kinda, it's it's on, so close to a oh, nice okay. round number of 50. <laughs> uh, yes yeah that it almost makes you wonder like why why was there not five more issues of story to have but i guess uh you know go out on your own terms when you're done telling the story you're done telling the story i guess yeah uh before we move on to the summary of these five issues we would like to thank each and every one of you for downloading this episode and listening and we especially would like to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you would like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and TV shows we've been watching. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to the summary of this comic book. And Norman, I was wondering if maybe before we actually like run through the plot beats, which will go pretty quick, should we talk some about the world, I guess, and paint some of that? background yeah because you know fill fill some of that in so uh looking at the summary you kind of typed out one of the things that i really kind of wanted to to talk about a little because i think it's an interesting way to present the beginning of this story uh is that kind of history lesson that's between the first uh the first scene and the second scene there's like that history Mm -hmm. lesson that's uh telling us a little bit more of how the world came to be and I think yeah. there's a lot of really interesting things in it and some visual clues as to things that are going to become important later on in the story. Not necessarily in this trade, but there are some similarities and some visual cues in there that I think are foreshadowing for later things. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting uh, way to tell the story with Death kind of, because it's in Death's voice. It's him giving us the history of this nebulous, the message and how... <laughs> the continent of North America was split into seven nations instead of the world we currently know. Yeah. So this is like, we're seeing a a point of divergence from our history, but you also get the sense there were earlier points of divergence for this world to be what it is. Then. Oh yeah. (laughs) 
um, 100%. Than just this moment. Uh, so this is uh, the history um, is that, uh, well, it says the Third Great Awakening happened around the same time as the Civil War. So that's kind of our point of divergence. And this is where mm-hmm. there's kind of a prophecy that gets shared among several different groups um, simultaneously, right? And that becomes the message. Am I remembering all that accurately? Yeah. The second book of Revelation is what it it is named later on in the in that same piece of the history lesson. Right. So there's um, it, like some Christian preachers, some uh, Native American uh, holy men. Uh, there is. Um, and exiled well, Chairman Mao. Like, yes, a Chairman Mao that gets some of this. Um, and we find out that this, the message is actually, it, well, from what I get in this first volume, it seems like a recipe to bring about the end of the world, correct? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's the blueprints for the apocalypse, and it's delivered in such a way as this is going to come to pass. Everyone has a role to play. You better make sure you play it. Particularly is kind of chosen. what's reinforced um, through this first trade. Yeah, that there's people who have received the message and become um, like obsessed with fulfilling their role in the prophecy, and they're referred to as the chosen. Right. Except for one of them. Now, right. <laughs> He's one of them who is among the chosen isn't too keen on carrying it out. He likes his life. Yeah. Well, I guess there's two actually Uh, that are really not keen on this happening. Right. So we get, uh, well, again, before we jump into the plot, so there's kind of like the world diverged there and we have this prophecy that's overlaying it. But then we have, like I said, all these different genres that are being introduced and we're kind of just kind of like dropped in to the deep end so like right after we get this um kind of info dump about the world which i we may circle back to because i'm always fascinated with how um alternative histories or fantasy worlds like establish the rules of their world for new readers immediately like or viewers it's like star wars we get the open crawl and that's like such a great like shorthand and once it becomes established it's like okay well star wars always does that so that's fine but if anyone else tried to do it that way it would feel like oh what a cheap knockoff that they're they're doing this lord of the rings we get the the monologues with the visuals overlaid right at the at the opening of um fellowship yeah uh there's lots of different ways to try and do this here it is kind of a you know you get the monologue with the visuals depicting moments of the uh, of the history as well so so a little bit of the lord of the Rings style there yeah but because it's in a it's in a in a medium that you have to read it almost kind of feels like a star wars crawl it's interesting <laughs> yeah i guess it feels like a mix of the the two openings of uh you know the, the star wars opening and the lord of the rings opening <laughs> simultaneously um, but then this world, like I said, we, we, we open up and we get this character who is white and I don't mean Caucasian. I mean like white, <laughs> like just pure white yeah. wearing white. Um, and he has like, I guess kind of, they appear like bodyguards, but they are like just pure black, uh, next to him and they're entering a saloon. So you get the, like this, this Western world, but then the costumes of the other characters around them, everything feels off from that world. And then we get all these images of like massive technology and like ships flying through the skies. And instead of a horse, he's riding on a robot creature. So immediately you're, you're like, you just know this isn't really a Western, but it kind of is a Western. Our main character is clearly a cowboy. That's the, the, uh, you know, all our visual demarcations that we're getting are, are connoting cowboy as we see him. 
Um, so yeah, I just wanted... it's mostly a sci-fi Western. Yes. Yeah. With, you know, the uh, prophecy of the apocalypse and, you know, some fantasy demon beings running around. Right. Uh, but that's the world we're in. So why don't we let me run through the plot and then we can circle back to some of these ideas that we've had. So death uh, is this cowboy figure. and He goes to a bar where he asks the bartender for some names. Death has two bodyguards is what I'm going to call them. But I wasn't quite clear on what the relationship was for sure uh, that are accompanying him. And they kill everyone in the bar while death is talking to the bartender in a very intimidating fashion. So now the bartender definitely gives him these names. Um, oh, but I guess before that even happened, I, I missed the prologue. I jumped down. There's these three figures who rise from the ground at the center of some a circle of stone pillars, and they note that one of them is missing, and they must kill him. Uh, so there's three here, and then they say one is missing, and then we see death. So we can quickly intuit that death is probably the one that was missing. So those three children from that prologue, uh, uh, and we're now told that these are now the three horsemen of the apocalypse, have massacred a large group of people, and they lay their bodies into this triangle pattern that is repeated throughout um, the comic and on the cover and in several places, both within the, the narrative it's and everywhere. within the production elements of the story, which Hickman loves to do uh, little visual, uh, like infographic kind of things in his stuff. So I'm not surprised at all <laughs> to see something like that. Um, so now death goes to the white tower instead of the white house. And he kills the president of, uh, well, I guess the United States, but I don't know. I, I can't remember if they say exactly what it's called in this world. Um, but apparently the president was one of the chosen from the list that the bartender gave death. So we've mentioned there's this prophecy, the message, and now death has a list of the chosen, uh, the three hill horsemen then go and kill all the individuals who would be in the line of succession to become president until they find one who is loyal to the message, which is this prophecy. Uh, and so now Antonia LeVay, who was the secretary of the interior, is sworn in as president. They had to go pretty far down to find someone who would be loyal. Yeah, to it's the a message. long, it's a long list. Yeah. Secretary of the interior. You don't even like really mentally calculate as part of the line of succession for a while. Um, so death visits another one of the chosen, Andrew Archibald Chamberlain, um, who, from the name, you could guess, is dressed like Colonel Sanders, and that it would be correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't kill him because Chamberlain is more loyal to staying alive than carrying out the message. He tells death that death's wife, Xiaolin, still lives. The three horsemen visit the bartender, who tells them that death is going to the Imperial Palace at New Shanghai. There, Premier Mao who uh, has two daughters, one of whom has been loyal his whole life, and the other is Zhao Lin, um, and she has been in prison for 10 years, and this is where death, maybe the implication we get is that death assumed she had been killed, but now we find out Zhao Lin has been alive, but imprisoned yeah. in this like secret garden inside the Imperial City, or uh, the Imperial Palace. Uh, but now... Premier Mao knows death is coming. So Premier Mao prepares an army to stand against death and his two bodyguards. That does not work well. <laughs> uh, death and his bodyguards <laughs> are just mowing down so many soldiers uh, in this. And in the battle, Xiao Lin is freed from her chains and she kills her sister and her father, declares herself to be the new leader, uh, the new premier, and she orders the army to stand down, which they do. Now, you would think, I was kind of prepped for a like romantic moment between death and Jalen. That is not what we get here. Uh, she makes it clear that things aren't going to be the same between them as when they were in love together before previously. Uh, but then death reveals that he has learned that their son is alive. Death promises to go find him and bring the son home. And we see a final shot of death riding off into the sunset end of issue five. Yep. 
So I that's, found this, uh, that's where uh, issue five ends on a very uh, classically Western image. Oh, yeah. So, so iconically Western, except he's riding on a robot four-legged thing. <laughs> not, not, right. a, not a horse. I uh, find it interesting that he is all white, uh, but we see visually he used to be all black. Yes. When we get the flashback. Something has happened of, to him. Of him and Zhao Lin in love. He looks like the ones who are his bodyguards now, you know, who are. Um, like, well, like just color. one of his bodyguards is all black. The The woman is all black with little touches of white and the man is all white with little touches of black. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's entirely, if it really comes across in the first trade. Uh, it might in a little bit of dialogue from the, the bodyguard that's all white, who is Wolf and uh, who is in love with the bodyguard that's all black, who is Crow. Right. Okay. They're not named in this issue, but that's also names he calls them in later issue in in later trades. Yeah, there's and they refer to themselves in that way. There's something intriguing there about them, but they're at this point more just like it felt like uh like color that is establishing the strangeness and the otherness of this world more than yet fully yeah. formed characters. But you could definitely feel like Hickman had a plan for them. There was going to be more. Yeah, we're just um, we're just getting started in this trade. There's a setup for all the characters that are going to become the kind of bigger moving pieces in the narrative after this trade. Even ones that you might not think seem like they're going to be big uh, narratively after this have little pieces of setup to show us their personality because they're going to be important. And I think that's both a positive and maybe a, a negative about this first trade is it feels like it's a taste of things rather than a story. Now I don't want to just like critique it for that because clearly he had a massive story in mind and this is meant to be an opening chapter of that. So, and it's intriguing enough that I do want to go read the next one, but particularly like when I was after I finished the first issue um, within the trade where it's like, this would have been what was put out into the comic book stores Um I was like, I don't know if I would have picked up the second issue based on just the first issue. Um, Cause I had no sense of what the story was in this. Like, and because so many different genres were being mashed together, like I didn't even have generic conventions to set my expectations. Um, it just kind of was like, well, that's interesting. Having the five issues, I feel like, okay, now I have a quest that death is going on, but it even took, you know, within the five issues, it took a little bit to figure out what was happening and why for for any of these characters yeah um and and so like i don't know how successful that like first issue was as a first issue um but i think having the five together made me like invested in finding out what is going to happen to these characters yeah i think i feel the same way because the the first issue ends right after death's encounter with the tracker i think i think that's where it stops mm-hmm. um or it might end uh even just a touch after that with the it's after uh, the, the new Secretary of the is sworn in as president, right? Oh, I think you're right. Hmm. I think I think the second issue actually... I think the second issue starts with them picking the... You're right. The, second, the first issue ends with them getting to Antonio LaVey. Yeah. It's hard to tell with the the production in the trade paperback because there's several places where it just goes to white pages with a little bit of text. And it's like, was that the end of the issue? <laughs> or is that just an interesting Yeah, that's, it's an interesting choice to kind of break up some of the scenes with these little 
like meaning filled sentences that either are related to what just came before or what you're about to see sometimes both. And sometimes they're related to things that are not going to happen for a while. So have you reread uh, any of this before prepping for this podcast now? Uh, I have not actually reread it until just now. I only have read the ones that I read the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I reread just the first one prepping for this. And I'm just thinking about the second one. Cause I, uh, before we started this, I said that either the first or second one would be a good thing to talk about. Cause the second one is where um, the second one is like full of action and intrigue and explains a little bit more about uh, some of the side characters motivations. And there's more about Texas in the second trade. <laughs> And so that's it becomes a little more narrative heavy where this one was doing some of the heavy lifting of establishing the world, right? Yeah, the second one introduces us, introduces you to some more like concepts about how the world works, but also uh, has kind of a plot thread throughout the issues that has to do with um, with betrayal among the chosen and all kind and some other stuff, too you get a little more insight about the message and the apocalypse. You get just like some more little crumbs. And uh, Archibald Chamberlain continues to be a glorious bastard. (laughs) Um, Yeah. There's, there's so many things that are fascinating about what Hickman presents in this one um, that, knowing that, you know, the world continues on and I can pick it up and, and find out more. Like I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to do that. Um, I, I, but part of me does wish that there'd been a little more given to me in these first issues to make, you know, to, to make me more fully invested. And maybe that's something that in trying yeah. to adapt it for TV, that's something I could see them running into. Like, how do you translate all of this into a pilot episode that is going to be worth the investment of ordering the series, as well as capturing viewers from, you know, episode one. I think you'd, you'd have to pull it apart. And I think kind of give it the, the same kind of treatment, Peter Jackson, uh, Fran and Philippa gave to Lord of the Rings, where you have to kind of pull it apart and try not to tell the story laid out the same way it was presented and try to intercut other things in as you go to give greater context. And that might be, I mean, that's definitely difficult from the perspective of writing a script, but that's probably what would have to be done in order to, like recontextualize and make this first part of the story more uh, enticing to like a mass audience. Because if you're just a fan of like the Western genre in general, and you dig kind of the sci-fi aesthetic, I think just reading this first trade is enough to get you to go, Oh, I want to know more about this world and how it got this way. But if that's not necessarily something that you just kind of jive with, I don't know if there's enough here other than uh, just pure curiosity at the hanging questions to get you to move on to that second trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And even within this, like there were some moments where we were given backstory, but I almost wish uh, that we'd been allowed to invest more into it. So like when Zhao Lin kills her sister, um, we'd been given some flashbacks of their relationship, but it, it felt like that moment should have felt more significant than it did. Cause it just kind of happened in the midst of this battle that <laughs> she killed her sister in a pretty brutal way. Uh, and then, yeah. then we move I, on. I and... do love their exchange though. There, mm-hmm. I think that their exchange there is really good. And I think that that exchange is more effective because we don't see 
uh, the full context of the fight between uh, Zhao Lin, her sister, and the three horsemen. Because we don't know how long Zhao Lin held them off. We don't know what this fight was like. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so And they- we don't see her lose her hands. You see her sister holding her arms flat on the ground. And war is in the background with her flaming sword and sl- approaching the camera, like the, the frame. But it's still pretty far in the background. So like we can infer kind of how long that moment was while she was waiting for her hands to be cut off. And I think it makes some of the impact of her saying, I, I thank you because now I am stone. I am steel. Like that moment for me is really cool and I really like it. And I don't think it'd be the same without kind of the the hanging and having to kind of infer the pain of that moment. Yeah, and I think that's something that comics can do really well. And this is where one area where Hickman definitely shines is using the strengths of the comic book medium to allow, like you said, some of those like hanging moments of anticipation that get broken up by the panel because we're only seeing the flashes. So we get this, um, the, these hints of the past of these two sisters where we see um, the one sister who's been loyal the whole time and uh, the three horsemen uh fighting her in this canyon um and uh it, but but we're only given them you know in in single panel panel at times where it's like uh it's not like the narrative is in the past it is uh here's our present day for like four panels and a conversation and then the conversation keeps going but we see a flash of what it was like when they were fighting and then back to uh the present and um Hickman is able to use the strengths of the comic book medium to, like you said, leave you hanging and like feeling the sense of foreboding of that, that image that you described of um, war walking towards her while the sister's holding the hands out. Uh, and we see in the present day, the sister, the, the uh, Zhao Lin has, has robotic hands. So we know her hands have been replaced um, in this, uh, but yeah. I, that and is she, something that works. She catches that sword and it's so badass. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh very, well suited to the strengths of the storytelling medium, which in reading this, like I kept thinking about, like you mentioned that Hickman presents us all these um, turns of phrase and like little, little sayings that have like the feeling of, of depth, but also you're uncertain of what it means exactly. Like, what is it referring to in this world that he's building um, right. and that, that he's giving us as readers, but you sense that there's weight and significance there. And it made me think more about the strangeness of comic book dialogue and time in relation to comic book dialogue, because you know, every panel, the art is static and you're just seeing this one instant. Um, But then you have the word balloons all around. And so as a single instant is happening, uh, you know, there can be an exchange in the word balloons in what in time is really only like one second. Uh, But we kind of, as readers like stop thinking about that. We're just reading along, but at the same time, you don't want a wall of text on the page. So conversations are often like clipped and briefer in comic books than they would be in real life. Like if you try and imagine um, a film script or, or, you know, any dialogue heavy thing, like an Aaron Sorkin script at translated into the pages of a comic book, you wouldn't even see any of the art. It would just be word balloons, you know, filling the entire page. (laughs) So there's, like less dialogue right. than would actually happen in a scene, but more dialogue per instant that is shown <laughs> in comic books. Um, and Hickman is able. Yeah, that's that's one of one of the things I love about comics, though, 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I, th- I think this is one of the fascinating things, particularly when you like stop thinking about it, like it just becomes natural that this is what it is. So like um, one way that I, I think we see uh, it when we try and translate comic books to other formats is one complaint about Spider-Man uh, is that in the comics, he's always cracking jokes and he's quipping during the fights with the supervillains. And th- what you find out is when you're actually seeing the fight play out in real speed, there's no time for all those quips and jokes. Um, but they fill the comic book page uh, so naturally that we want to see Spider-Man doing that. But like the jokes per punch <laughs> that he let, you know, one joke per punch that he does in the comic book page, it just doesn't translate to film at all because the, the, the pace do- doesn't line right. up and to get that dialogue out. I mean, that that's one of the things they really struggled with in the, the first Spider-Man trilogy. The Sam Raimi one is trying to kind of find that balance and most of the time it works, but sometimes it kind of falls flat. And that's, you know, that's part of the whole process of film and like trying to translate a work that is visual, but so inherently different from film. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and when they get it right, like it always like just makes me happy because I'm like, oh, there's Spider-Man like doing the joke. But I understand like why right, yeah. you, you can't you can't do exactly what you get in the comics because time is working, functioning very differently um, in this and Hickman, I think, hits a nice balance of giving us deliberate dialogue. Like everything, every word that comes out of Death's mouth is so carefully chosen to be the right amount of words for this panel image that we're getting. Um, and you can sense yeah. that there's layers of meaning. And that's, I think that's one thing, reason why I'm like really intrigued to pick up the next one is I feel like it's kind of like the Hemingway ice, iceberg theory um, where he said like uh, Hemingway said like a good, good writing is showing the readers the tip and letting them feel everything that's underneath an iceberg in the ocean. Right. You know, they just know it's there, yeah. but you're yeah. not actually showing it all to them. And I felt that a lot in this, in this first trade, yeah. both in the dialogue and the art and the world. Like I'm just seeing the tip of the iceberg and I feel like there's a lot more that's, oh, that yeah. is here. And I think mm-hmm. it would reward doing a reread like you're saying where like you come back and you revisit the first one once you you become more accustomed to the world and you see oh this is what that was referring to this this was setting up that that gets paid off you know 20 issues down the line which which in for comic book reader time that's like really like two years down the line this this one uh you know sequence gets paid off in a different way later on that sort of thing right yeah the the tip of the iceberg thing i mean the the story that me and Sandra are covering on our movies by minutes podcast, that's all Tolkien ever did was give us a small slice of the world and make us feel like it was bigger than it is bigger than yeah. where he's showing. Yeah. Like you're seeing one of the biggest days so like that's... ever for, for middle earth. But the reason this is big is because you sense all the history that's layered all around and everything that's building to this moment, but he's not going to show you all of that. He's just going to hint at it throughout. Right. Um, before, before we started talking about, um, this uh this kind of sense of the world uh when you were talking about the dialogue and like kind of the deliberate dialogue choices the first example of something that has kind of a double meaning is on the the second page of this story (laughs) which is uh when or the third page i guess actually where they say they're gonna they're gonna cast the bones to see the truth right and it's the eye the feather the bullet and the bone though like that is and you can see some other objects in that frame, including what looks like an, uh, an American quarter. And I think that that frame is an explanation uh, is like the things that lead up to the assassination of the president of the U.S. is what those things show. 
Oh, I can see it cuz like the eye is related to the 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 um the bartender has this weird eye <laughs> that I didn't even explain. Right, and the feather represents his no allies. There's no of it yet. <laughs> right. Like the eye is sentient by itself and crawls out of his face and talks to the horsemen at one point. There's, I can't remember I can't remember if it's this. in the second or third trade where you get the explanation for the eye. Yeah. But you do get one and it right. matters. <laughs> Like, that's the thing. Like, there's so many, there's so many hanging pieces of this world. And almost every question that I, uh, that that you might have after the first trade, most of them are answered by the end of, like, trade four. And then it's just about what's going on beyond (laughs) this stuff. So there's, there's just a lot going on. to, To pick up more. Um. (laughs) <laughs> and I do like like flipping through uh, like when you mentioned oh it's on this page I wanted to go see it so I'm flipping through Nick Dragada's art is is pretty amazing in this and oh yeah also I want to get uh, colors were with Frank Martin the coloring work on this is also um, just top notch like it's elevating I think everything and some of the work that gets done to like differentiate the flashbacks with just a little bit of haziness. Um, and, and a slightly different coloring palette than the present day. Uh, and Oh yeah. I love the, I love the way the kind of history lesson and the flashbacks with Zhao Lin are inked. They're really, it really makes them stand out against everything else, even though they have more muted colors because everything else has such bold lines. Those pages really stick out when you flip through the book. Well, and there's some really interesting choices that are made that I think are very successful. So like when death has this conversation with, um, Chamberlain uh it's almost entirely black and white because the, they, they go super dark on the backgrounds there uh death is like literally just all white uh Chamberlain has you know white hair and and southerner white uh mustache and goatee and everything um and so it's I love him he is my favorite character to read in this yeah. story you can hear the voice. Now, it's, it's interesting. Like, there's definitely some leaning into stereotypes and tropes of Southerners and uh, some of the Native American imagery that we get and some of the, uh, for, for New Shanghai, some Asian imagery that we get, where I'm not sure in only these five issues, I'm like, what is he going to do with some of these stereotypes that we're seeing? I assume it gets paid off in a way that feels um, like it's acknowledging the some of the tropiness and doing something different, right. As in how it, how it's going right. I to, think it, I think it leans it. into some of the tropes because it's trying to evoke things about uh, Western stories from the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of both to its benefit and its detriment in a way, I think like th- there's good and bad in doing that. Yeah. But the, when you start to learn more about the, uh, the endless nation, there's some really cool stuff going on there. I actually really, I really love the aesthetic because uh, you very quickly find out that they are the most technologically advanced of the seven nations. And which, which but also still cling to all of this spiritualism. Is that the native American? Yeah. So the, the seven nations, it says really, it tells you early that there are seven, but it doesn't name them all. You I can don't think infer we see some of them that. from the text and like, Hmm. We, we don't see them all in this first trade, right? Do we see what? We don't see all seven nations in this first trade. No, we don't. No, they, um, 
we meet a leader from each one. And Chamberlain does call uh, it the Endless Nation when they're doing their introduction with the Chosen. What they don't name in the first trade, and I can't remember off the top of my head whether or not they still have their names, like how they're named is whether or not it's the United States of America and the Confederate States of America, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And then there's the Endless Nation, the Republic of Texas, the People's Republic of America, Armistice, and the Kingdom of New Orleans. (laughs) I did not expect the Kingdom of New Orleans to be the last one that you listed there. (laughs) no uh, yeah i mean it's that's just like where i was going in my brain as i was thinking about the the page that they're all listed on or the, the yeah. page where we meet no, the leaders I, I, I like it that there's uh the King prince john Norway. freeman is pretty cool yeah uh so you can see like in some ways this is doing the alternate history thing like oh what if the civil war never ended you know that sort of thing but there's so much more that gets gets thrown in uh to make this world that i think it it elevates it beyond um you know any one of those genres um into something that's you know unique and and very interesting to look at um because of the, because of the fabulous art and because of the interesting things that dragata is given <laughs> given to draw um you know whether it's you know characters turning into uh, you know crow and wolf turning into those animals during the fight uh the the weird mix of nature and technology that um, we're often given when we first see like new Shanghai, I think, and, and the white tower, like it's, it's massive technology in this yeah. very natural setting. Um, so he's, he's definitely uh, playing with, with that mix um, within here. Um, what do you feel is the greatest strength of this series though, for you, for you? Like if you're going to try and like sell this on one thing, what is it that, that most works for you? Um, so it, it's kind of twofold because I think that uh, they kind of counterintuitively complement each other in a way. Uh, and it's that the world building is so rich and complex, but the, like, it's a very, very focused kind of classic revenge story, at least how it's premised. And I think that helps keep you focused in a world that just balloons around you. Mm-hmm. And I think that really kind of helps the story kind of stick things as it goes, even as it starts to throw more and more and more about the world at you, that death's motivation is so single-minded helps really keep everything together. And I think that can help a reader going forward. And I think it is one of the things that really helps the story go. I like that. And that's when I felt like I had the best handle on what this was going to be was when death told his wife, uh, who is referred to as the woman who conquered death, which I love that <laughs> because she, Oh yeah. Jowlin's Je- awesome. And she just stays awesome. I, w- I want to come back and, and talk about her in a little bit more uh, depth. Uh, but once we got the mission of death saying, I'm going to go find our son. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm in. Uh, it took us a while to get there, but now, like you said, I've got this. Yep. personal classic story in this insane crazy world but i can grab onto a parent going to save a child um in in a mix of both uh revenge and uh rescue (laughs) you know simultaneously trying to do those two things like i understand that and redemption um, too right because he's also trying to redeem himself in the eyes of his his wife yes so let's talk a little bit about a little bit of everything 
uh, as characters and as their relationship. That's I, I, I would definitely want to want to dig into that. Um, so death feels very much uh, akin to the classic loner cowboy character that rides in and you know causes trouble but cleans up the mess simultaneously. Oh yeah, he's very John Wayne. He's very Clint Eastwood. Like that's the whole thing. Yeah, in in terms of dialogue, but also skill set. You know what we see on display. Yeah. Um, and he, one he very thing... much is. I think that the his first scene with the tracker tells you like everything you need to know about how this guy operates immediately. Yeah, but even though he so that's the scene in the bar, uh, he's letting his his I guess bodyguards is what we're gonna call them do most of the work, right? He's just confident. He's confident in their abilities, so he lets them do their thing while he nonchalantly uh, takes his drink from the bartender, and the bartender is looking horrified as there's all this death and mayhem, mayhem that's happening. And then, yeah, and then he's just like, "Don't say my name, or I will come for you." <laughs> yeah, I, and also the way that I, I do want to the, the bar fight art, um, we're we're actually we're seeing death at the bar. And then the background is just onomatopoeic letters making violent sounds. Yeah. <laughs> they just draw in like, no crash, boom, ah, in, in like may. I think it's also kind of lettering. important to note. Yeah. I think it's also kind of important to note that those, the, his, his two buddies, uh, inflict so so much violence against the union soldiers in this bar after they make a racist comment to wolf <laughs> yes which and then death is just like all right guys do your thing that's always one thing to make you feel a little better about the the mass violence uh in stories is you got to make not too much sympathy for those upon whom the violence can be enacted they have to have earned it in some way and <laughs> as soon as they're racist. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, the line has been crossed. All right. Gloves off. <laughs> yes. Now, obviously yeah. this is a level of violence that uh, is disproportional <laughs> to the racial slur <laughs> that, that was uttered verbally. Uh, but it's to make you feel less bad as a reader uh, about this. And it's establishing both the violence of the world in which they live, because even though the bartender looks shocked, you definitely have the sense that this is not really that far out of the norm for this world to have a massacre happen just right. any day at the drop, you know, at, at a misspoken word. Um, but also establishing the, yeah. the quality or the strength of these two characters that they will fight an entire room and win, but also that death is their leader. And you have the sense uh, implicit in all of this, that he is even more competent than they are. Right. Yeah, and I uh, I think that that first scene really sets up a lot of stuff, and I a lot of it gets paid off later in his character, the whole, like, don't say my name thing, unless you mean to call for me. And then in the scene with the president, he makes him say his name. And then in the scene with Chamberlain, Chamberlain says death so casually as part of conversation. Well, and death recognizes, like, you're willing to say my name. And I think it's and interesting like, yeah. how those three, like, one-on-one themes build on each other. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely something there um, in both uh, death as a character, but then his relationship with everyone else, um, you know, the yeah. how, how they feel. Because he's not just a character, him. like he's an embodiment of the concept of death. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about Zhao Lin uh, before we have to wrap up. Because uh, once I got to her in, I think it's the fourth issue is when we really start to see who she is. I was like, oh, this is the most interesting character to me <laughs> right now. Oh, that one's great. Um, I love that this story could have really done her dirty in that last issue when they reunite. And it doesn't. She 100% just kind of seizes hold of her agency in that at the end of this battle in the Imperial city. And she doesn't let go of it even by like looking death in the face and being like, this isn't going to be what you wanted it to be. Yes. It's so good. I really, I love that moment. There's so many versions of this story where the trapped lover is being held hostage and the hero rides in, kills everyone in the way and rescues her. And that is not what we get in issue five (laughs) of this. Yes. No, it is not. Is coming, and yes, death does mow down uh, an army that is between him and his wife. But she uh, kills her sister, who has basically tortured her for a decade, it seems, and her father to claim the leadership of this this nation, right? Um, and so, mm-hmm. it, like you said, she's completely agentive within the course of the battle, but then it's not lovers unite and we return to a status quo of what like a decade before how yeah exactly how how it all broke down is not yet clear we know they were in love they had a child we know she fought the three horsemen and lost and lost her hands and was in prison for a decade we don't know how death believed she was dead or i don't think we even quite know the story of the child yet like how how it was taken how death didn't know the child was alive when he's dead you think he'd know who everyone that's dead is right um he's got a pretty right. specific mandate there uh, same with his wife like like it's pretty shocking that death has two people he thought were dead revealed to be alive to him <laughs> in in this story to pull it over yeah, on death that... there's got to be some some trickery that has happened right but that's part of the thing right like you can't cheat death forever Mm-hmm. definitely yeah uh and and like you said she remains agentive by uh well even it's it's in the art right i'm just remembering the art is there's the scene after they get reunited she is standing and he sits down right and and he is um on the right facing across to the left yeah and she's in the position of power and authority and she's standing yeah he kneels yeah he he bows before her because she's the woman who conquered death. And uh, I, I really, I feel like even that itself could have gotten like really tropey in the wrong kind of way. But the moment when she like takes control of uh, her father's nation just feels so right in what's going on around her. Because when she talks to, she has that kind of inner monologue when her father is watching the battle She's like, there's this moment when a man who believes he was a giant his whole life sees one for the first time and it causes a reaction and causes them to see how small they really are. And I think she doesn't just see death as that giant. I think that's how she feels about herself, that she is a giant and seeing death head on didn't make her realize she was small. It made her realize she was as great as him. Oh, I like that. And that's one of those lines of dialogue where it's like, okay, Hickman, well done. I can respect that turn of phrase and that insight into human nature. Yeah, I, There's the, the dialogue is there are just a couple of different lines in this story that I think 
really, really show uh, the world and where the world is going and who some of these characters are at their core. And I think that uh, Death is is kind of painted that way because he talks so like simply and directly. He talks about, uh, he always talks about the end goal. He doesn't really talk about the present like ever. He's always talking about the end of things, which I think is really appropriate. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it just shows that so much care was being put into each character's worldview and presenting that worldview to the reader naturally without beating them over the head with it. Um, but in, in terms of how they see the world, yeah. how, how they're going to talk about the world around them. Yeah. And Zhao Lin is very much in the present, I think, in the, her mannerisms and the way she, she kind of interacts with everything. She's very much about right now, which is why I think it's so like, she immediately is just like, you changed what you look, I, you have an age, but you look different. And death kind of says the same thing back to her. Like, but you know, you have age, you do look different. And there's, there's some interesting interplay with them because I think that also is about, you know, Zhao Lin is mortal. So she has to live in the present. So she sees things so differently than him. And after this 10 years, like that's part of what's irreconcilable between them in a way. But if he does bring their son back, that's the way to kind of set things right with her and kind of try again, 10 years down the line. And I think that that's, that's like an interesting facet of their dynamic is the way that they kind of view the passage of time. Yes. And, and she says this one line where they're, when they're reunited and as you said, like she tells him, you look different kind of acknowledging you, you didn't look all white when we were dating. (laughs) Um, But then she says, uh, after telling him that he looks different, he actually says they took your hands and they talk about that. And then he tells her she looks different. And she says, I'm older and die a bit every day when I wake. And that like simultaneously is able to encapsulate like the difference from the past. Uh, Okay. I'm older now. Uh, but also like an eye to the future that I'm, I'm dying. Like I, I'm mortal. I will die. You, you're an idea concept. (laughs) Like we have different life paths in front of us, but it also keeps it so present by saying I die a little bit every day when I wake up. Um, you know, like, like this is my, my present is crumbling, like, like, uh, pieces of me crumbling off, uh, you know, daily, like that, that's my constant present nature. Um, and uh, it's acknowledging what you were pointing out about, like the, their viewing time is something that's very different. And she manages to highlight yeah. so many different aspects of time in that one word balloon in a dozen words, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine words. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Hick- Hickman is really, really good at some of this. Uh, I think some of the, some of the lines that stick with me as far as um, both, embodying a character but also telling us more about what's going to happen in a vague way is with chamberlain's conversation with solomon uh right near the end where they're in the place where death and jaolin's son is because solomon is just like we we need to stop this and like stop the apocalypse because it's just it's right and chamberlain is just like oh you're being silly and when he asks chamberlain you know you're not going to stop it you're just going to watch it he's like oh god no the let me i'm gonna find it real quick because it's i think it's my favorite line in this first trade um it's where is it it is very close to the end when uh right at the beginning of number five 
near the middle, near the middle of number five. Yeah. When he's asked, are you really just going to watch and do nothing? Chamberlain says, God, no. The world being on fire is exactly the kind of call to action I've been waiting years for. It breeds opportunity. It spawns mischief. I am awakened and full of cause. And it's just like, that says so much about who Chamberlain is. It tells you a lot about the world in which Chamberlain operates and contextualizes his interactions with both death and the three horsemen earlier in the trade. Yes. Yeah. That, that little um, statement, I'm awakened and full of cause um, when most of the characters we see outside, uh, like most of the side characters we see are in um, a lot of them are in fear, right. Of, of what's going on around them. They're in fear of the horsemen of the apocalypse that we see. They're in fear of death. Like that's their reaction to everything. Chamberlain does not fit, fit that. He is the one character we see who can speak no. both to death and the three horsemen with kind of a cavalier attitude about it. Uh, you know, a nonchalance like this. Yeah. Like there's a, there's so much going on with Chamberlain. Um, but yeah, his conversation with the, the three horsemen, he's just like, and also where you find out what their names are actually in the trade, because uh, there's no pestilence. Pestilence is replaced with conquest mm. in this story. Yes. It's famine, yeah. war, conquest and death and death. Yeah. Yeah. So like that, that's one of the things that I find kind of interesting about this. And I don't know if that is just um, some idea that Hickman had, or like maybe when they were planning out the story, he didn't have a good sense on what the horsemen of pestilence would be in the world he wanted to build. So he just changed it. I don't really know the origin of why it's different, uh, but I think it works. I really like the dynamic of them as children and kind of acting like children when because war tells us they're going to be children for a season while they transition and war is sad to be a boy because <laughs> in the flashbacks war is girl right she's the one with the flaming sword they all three of them are uh have changed from what they were before so okay. famine used to be a boy conquest and war were both women and the only hint we have about and death, death is when she when jaolin tells him you've changed. He says something about the cost of not dying when I should have. Uh, and that's yeah, kind of like so hand that was a way of, yeah, that there's, I, I'm sure we'll get more that, you know, about that. I don't um, want to talk about that right now. Yeah. But that's, that's part of, uh, that he said it, it was no small coin. I like the, the way they talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, it's so interesting. Like the mix of, uh, old West dialogue and Southern dialogue. And you know, like, like it's all just in there and somehow it works. It's this potpourri of, of you know, the genres and, and character types. Um, and, right. You can, you can hear so many of the, so much of the dialogue, like in a Texan drawl or in a Southern accent, mm-hmm. but then like there's other places where the dialogue feels so modern and it's just, it's interesting and it all just, it still works. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the tabletop RPG Shadowrun, but uh, this world has a whole lot in common with the world of that tabletop RPG in that it's like a modern world with magic and it's kind of changed the way uh, that humanity developed after a certain point. So there is a, a point of divergence of some, you know, some, turning turning point in the past right yeah uh for in in the case of shadow on the tabletop rpg it's that 
uh, magic kind of comes and goes on the face of the earth uh, like the tide. And we were in a lull and then uh, there's a comet that shows up every so often. And every time the comet comes by, it signals the return of magic or the reduction of magic on the earth. And so when that happens, like the first, when magic went away the first time, it's actually what caused the dark ages. I'm liking this world, this world building of this RPG. Yeah. And then when magic, magic came back, uh, in i think it it's i think it's 2021 but when shadowrun was designed they decided that they wanted like the technological aesthetic of the world to be very like 1980s cyberpunk so everything looks very 1980s in the world design <laughs> uh but magic came back to the world and that caused people to randomly some people randomly changed into like fantasy races like they were people one day and then the comet happens and magic gets worse and like as magic comes back to the world, some people randomly turned into trolls or orcs or elves or dwarves. And like some newborn babies just came out as orcs or elves. <laughs> and just like the whole world starts going crazy. Uh, and one of the things that these, that uh, that world and the world of East and West has in common is how like magically and in some ways like technologically dominant they've made the native American nation in this world. And then that's also true in Shadowrun. Like they violently reclaimed most of the United States in Shadowrun when magic came back. And that is definitely one of the things uh, like in alternative histories uh, that you often see. So like some of the classic examples are like the Nazis won world war two or the South won the civil war. But I think there's, it seems a more recent thread has been, um, you know, genocide didn't wipe out the Native American populations when when the Europeans came. Uh, and, and then what happens? Well, you know, what's different? Right. And then, like, there's all these stories where later on down the line, so while well, the Native Americans eventually rose back up and took it all back. <laughs> like, I've, there's there's more examples of that that I've seen just, like, in the last, like, 10 or 15 years or so, too. And I, I think that's cool because, you know, we deserve it at yeah, least a little. There's some historical injustices uh, <laughs> that are that, that uh, in, in fiction you can start to play with uh, and try and correct. Yeah. But yeah, I think that there's there's just so much world building in this this first trade and it leaves you with so many hanging questions. But then I really appreciate that this first trade kind of hangs it hangs its hat on a really classic like western storytelling convention of well i'm gonna go get vengeance let's vengeance let's ride off into the sun and do the right thing like that's that's just sweet it's just a really cool last page and it's so beautifully rendered the art there it just pops yeah there's so there's so many just individually beautiful panels in in this first trade that is just oh man wow like nick dragata is so good at this it's, it's so good at all the like crazy detail in the background work that's put into so many of these images. And I don't know if I've read a whole lot else uh, by Hickman or illustrated by Dragata, to be perfectly honest. I think I saw in the back, it said the like their, uh, their first collaboration was doing uh fantastic four run. I think it was, or when they had FF for the fantastic, for the fantastic four for Marvel. And I think I've read some of that mm. Hickman run on Fantastic Four. So that would have been 
probably the only time I've looked at his art, but he's he should be working regularly. Like oh, said, for there, sure. There's like, so much. I occasionally think. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I occasionally think that some of the facial expressions uh, don't kind of work for me, but for the most part, the art is so spot on. Yeah, there. I mean, with, with comic art, there's so much in terms of being able to do like the that full page spread that we we we've mentioned at the end of the the silhouette of death riding off into the sunset. But then there's also like the storytelling from panel to panel and getting the layouts. And I never caught myself moving from one panel to the next. And sometimes I'm surprised how much um, even like mainstream professional comic book art, there's times where I'm like, ah, oh, that panel transition or the storytelling itself feels a little um, stilted visually um, as, as you're moving through, like trying to work out the, the motion, you know, can, can catch you. I never had that problem at all uh, with Trugada's art. No, it like every progression from panel to panel feels really natural, even when it's clearly very uh, like the, the actions are so completely different. That's uh, really true in the little flashback with Zhao Lin, because there's one page that's just eight perfectly separated panels, but it doesn't feel like you're jumping through time so jarringly, even though you kind of are. Yeah, did he do he did all 45 issues? think is that correct yeah i'm pretty sure dragata did all 45 issues that's something uh, i love when a writer and an artist can collaborate to tell an entire story and it's not disrupted by phil and artists which i understand why for particularly for the big two marvel and dc they've got to hit their schedule sometimes you get phil and artists in the middle of a story but there's something special when a writer and artist can actually tell the entire story together uh with that that collaboration writing the whole way through Yeah. All right, Norman, For any sure. final thoughts on East of West? Um go go read it. Uh it <laughs> it's really engrossing. The story comes at such a pace that like as you read it, you're just going to get faster at reading the trades. Cuz you cuz you want to uh, know what be happens prepared next, right? Because the level of huh? Because you want to know what happens next. Like there's the, the building momentum of the story. Yeah, you just you just need to know. Uh, but the violence, uh, but more than the violence, the kind of body horror, because there isn't a lot of body horror in this first trade. Well, uh, there's the that, sentient eye that, that crawls gets... out of someone's face. <laughs> yep. Uh, and if you think that that is bad, uh, that is like maybe 1% of how crazy some of the body horror gets. Okay. Well, thank you for that warning. <laughs> So uh, be prepared. There is some there is some hardcore body horror, especially with um, uh, the chosen starting at the end of the second trade. Well, thank so, you for recommending. Be mindful. It. Just be, <laughs> be ready. I was going to say thank you for recommending the series because I really did enjoy getting into this world. Like I said, I, I I felt a little lost early on, but like once it became like the story of death going to rescue his child i'm like okay i'm in i i like the world that's been built death I, is on a quest for love yeah well yes yeah you can tell it's not just to get his child it's to try and redeem himself in his wife's eye <laughs> eyes there is yeah is definitely a part of this as well um 
All right, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay And our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Norman, would you like to plug your show one more time? Yeah, uh, I am one of the two hosts, along with Cassandra Fredrickson of Lord of the Rings Minute, which you can also find on DuelingGenre.com. Pod- uh, Dueling and uh, yeah, go check us out. We are almost halfway through Return of the King. And so there's still a long way to go. So you have time to catch up if you haven't started listening to it yet. Well, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Here, I may give Andrew a clean edit there. I was, I had um, the schedule up, and Nick English is a as a guest on a recent episode, and I had just glanced at that name, <laughs> and so I called you Nick for a second. So yeah. I'm sorry. Let me uh, That's let me right. give that a fresh run, just so Andrew doesn't have to try and work around that. Um, okay. <laughs>